right, man. Welcome to the introduction for Crow 777 Radio, episode 114. I have Jason Lindgren with me. We're going to tackle a very hard-to-research, to any degree that matters, subject called cymatics, which is basically, for the scope of this discussion, taking waves like audio frequencies, which you normally couldn't see, and making them visible. Now, we cover quite a bit of ground here, and we have an announcement at the end of uh, the first hour where we've gotten a very spectacular guest, so those who make it through will get that introduction, and it will cap our law series, of which we've done four episodes. But anyone can go out right now on YouTube and look for examples of cymatics being done. Basically, it's a steel or a metal or a glass hard surface plate with a frequency fed into it and some medium like sand put on top, which forms geometric patterns, proving, in fact, that waves create form. But there's much more to it. We will get into this in this episode, and this is a very critically important topic, and it's gotten so hard to research this topic, and I'm not even kidding. But if you do go out and look for videos, and it's visually stunning, it is absolutely visually stunning to see cymatics performed in the way I just explained, keep in mind something we informed you all about from past episodes. The angles of sorrow are 90 degrees. So when you see things that are like squares, that is the 90 degree angle. That is the angle of sorrow. The angle of joy is said to be the angles that are represented within an equilateral triangle. So when you go out and you see the cymatic shapes, the reason I'm pointing this out is because there are a number of videos that show the difference between the 432 tuning in music and the 440. So many people coming in to defend the 440. I'm here to tell you cymatics proves what we've been talking about here. You will constantly find the angles of sorrow in the 440 tuning, or if it's done on a round plate, you get square shapes kind of if it's done on a square plate. On a round plate, the thumbnail for this episode will demonstrate the difference between 432 tuning or the Verde or tuning that has to do with the Fibonacci sequence or how a flower is created or a human hand or the 440 that's right in the episode image. Anyhow, let's jump in with Jason Lingrid. Fascinating topic, important topic. Cheers. All right, man. Welcome to Crow 777 Radio. This is episode 114. I have Jason Lingren with me. Today, we're going to talk about a thing which will be very difficult for the average person out there to look into just because the topic has been obscured. It's a thing that has been known about since time immemorial, and I'll try to demonstrate that as we go through clearly all the way back to the hermetic ideas that we've covered. The idea of vibration will be key in this, the idea of polarity and the idea of rhythm, among others. This is cymatics. And to give people a clue, cymatics is basically, if you go on YouTube, what you will find is people are basically taking metal or glass plates, putting some medium like sand on the glass plates, and putting a vibration frequency through. And guess what? Form is made. You compile a mound of sand in the middle of these plates quickly hit it with some frequency and form is created. Think about what we're saying. But anyhow, welcome, Jason. Good morning, Crow. Since it is so difficult to do any research that matters on the internet on this topic, I'm going to read from Hans Jenny's book, Cymatics, just to put people's mind in a proper frame. Here we go. In the vast spectrum extending from gamma radiation through ultraviolet and visible light, which is the light our eyes see, to infrared. Infrared, people might think of as heat rays. To the electric waves, which would probably encompass microwave and radio waves. Hint, hint, hint. 
That's what we're talking about here. Anyone can grab uh, a search engine, go look at these waves. And so the interesting thing that people need to keep in mind is this does not encompass everything, but it's damn near the everything we talk about. And what this is going to cover is how form is created flat out with waves. And this harkens back to people like, um, who's the electrical genius, Jason? Nikola Tesla. No, no, no. The guy that's on, uh, yeah, Nikola Tesla, if there ever was such a man, but the gentleman who is on YouTube now uh, that had that had been marginalized so heavily by the powers that be. Eric Dollard. There he is, Eric Dollard. Even in Dollard's work, he will tell you flat out that the same problems that existed in understanding electricity, which is part of the wave spectrums I just defined, are the same problems that don't get taught to electrical engineers here today. In some of his clips, he'll tell you that they worked out how to deliver electricity back with the teletype, you know, back in the cowboy days, most people would think of it if there ever was such a time when they were doing the Morse code over these lines. But the problems, the overall problems that existed uh, have never really been worked out for the average electrical engineer or these other people. And the reason he states is because the person who understands how electricity works understands how all waves work. And when you understand how all waves work, well, what did we just say? This is how form is created. But I will mention, while I watch next to no television at this point, I used to reference TV to do research. Um, One of the most popular shows on television at that point, anyhow, I don't know what's true now, is The Big Bang Theory, of course, drawing its name from a nonsensical theory which has no basis in reality. But the main character there, Sheldon, was walking around with a cymatics pattern on his shirt. Um, What do you think about that, Jason? I'd be very curious what frequency it was that they were representing because things don't get on mainstream television or into any mainstream medium at all without someone having scrutinized it and put it there on purpose. If I remember correctly, and I hope I do, it was a yellow shirt, uh, which may also be telling us something, because in our previous episode on color, we demonstrated flat out that if you dye the color of a shirt, you have in fact changed its vibrational rate and the mood and tone and effect it has on the human mind. But you think like I do, the moment I recognized that was a cymatic pattern, I meant to try to go look it up. The problem is, is if you try to go reference these things online now, it is so obscured. And as you begin to lay down the acceptable timeline, I will point out over and over how obscured this has become because one of the main guys now is Hans Jenny, a Swiss-German guy, um, and he's all the way up into you know what I'm going to call the modern era. And as I stated before, this goes back so much further, even the word cymatics, uh, what it means, which you will define as in Greek, and I will maintained to the day I drop. Uh, This is all reflected in the hermetic principles, and we don't know where those begin. But anyhow, what do we need to cover for the intro here, Jason? Right. That was a good little intro to give everyone an idea of what we're going to be approaching here. But you did a show a few weeks ago, I think now, right? Right. It was a four-part series. Um, It's on YouTube now. There's some audio issues, but I held up my end. For my part, it was a good delivery. Uh, It's on Freak Sense TV. So that would be Freak Sense, F-R-E-A-K, same word, S-E-N-S-E, Freak Sense, new word, TV capped. You can find it there. It was a four-part series he's done. I haven't had time to to listen back to much of it, but I I delivered on my end. Uh, What else? Do we want to mention anything about the movie here? 
Just that it's coming along. So just so people understand, this is Shoot the Moon movie that Jason's making based on my four years of telescopic observation. It will precede uh, the October 2013 date where I started my YouTube channel all the way back to 2012 where I accidentally filmed probably the best example of the lunar wave. We'd also like to mention a gentleman a fearless man, a living man in Scotland who we have referenced before. We did a four-part series on law, and it lit up every forum that I run in a major way. People are very into this. I even went out into the world and by chance bumped into people, everyone thinking about common law right now for whatever reason. Clearly, it's in the overall human consciousness right now for some reason. But we did the four-part series on law, and lo and behold, Mr. Robert Sproul in Scotland, YouTube channel Rob S, R-O-B, new word, E-S-S, set up a common law court. This brave man has stood in front of the judge many times, which you can see on his YouTube channel. He's been marginalized, basically. So what they did is what I guess all human beings used to do when at a time when we were much more free. They set up a common law court. Hell of a thing. And we're hoping we'll talk to him soon. Anything else you can think of, Jason? Go on Rob S.'s channel and just try and get through some of the videos. See the things he's doing. He's challenging the law and he's winning. He knows what he's doing, but I will point out for the American listeners, this is kind of a, the worm turns here. We're covering all this law and people are coming in from Europe saying, well, how does that apply to us over here? Well, here's Rob. He's in Scotland. And apparently Scotland has a very unique concept of common law that is peculiar in some way, I think, to Scotland. So when he does the last clip where he informs everyone that they set up a common law court of the people, by the poor people, for the people. And I know a lot of people out there won't like the term people. That's a lot of peoples. Uh, I apologize. The vocabulary I have is the vocabulary I have. Point here being is if truly a common law court is a court of record, what's going on there can't be ignored, I would estimate. So we will see what happens. And again, we will try to cover it. What's next, Jason? I think we're good. Let's move on. All right, just so we can be clear, the word cymatics, C-Y-M-A-T-I-C-S, Jason will define in a minute, but if you go on YouTube and look it up, you will find examples of people doing just what I said. It's very visually stunning, uh, where they put up a plate with some medium on top of it, they blast it with a frequency, and all of a sudden form is made where no form existed. The problem is, is they're not really explaining what it means. And so as we get into this right now, I will say flat out, what you are watching is form being created out of thin air, seemingly. And when I explained to you earlier the range of what I will call waves, uh, which is what science in the West calls everything, from gamma all the way to the other end, you can go look it up online. Um, this is a heck of a thing. It's been known for a long time, and it goes to show you what modern science has done. So let's start just with a simple definition of somatics for everyone out there. The study of visible effects of sound and vibration. The word somatics comes from the Greek word kuma, meaning a wave, surge, or billow. The word cymatics was originally coined by Hans Jenny, a Swiss follower of the philosophical school known as anthroposophy. And just for everyone out there who doesn't know what that is, anthroposophy is a formal educational, therapeutic, and creative system established by Rudolf Steiner, seeking to use mainly natural means to optimize physical and mental health and well-being. 
So you'll see later in the timeline, this Hans Jenny character, the Swiss German, I think he is, uh, is from the modern era. And when you go online to look up books on cymatic, this is the main one they're willing to show you. And I got it. Um, and I read it cover to cover. And it's a hell of a thing. They have taken this ancient thing that has been known for Lord knows how long on how form is actually created. And they put it in a new language. You know how in the last four episodes we've talked all about legalese, how they invent a language so the average person has no idea what's being said? Science is no different. When I read this book, I know enough to understand what was being said, but the language used is so obscuring for the average mind that wants to know something, and this is what's happening. And I will maintain, this has been known for such a long time before Hans Jenny. We're going to you know, tap Galileo Galilei, which I have real problems with, in the 50s. 1800s, but it goes back way the hell before that, and I would point out anything about Galileo is coming to us through the church. Um, another thing is the definition of kuma, meaning wave. The oldest definition I could find uh, actually makes it pertaining to waves, and that makes you think. If there was a time so long ago when people, you know, what is sound? It's audio. You can't see it. Well, this is a way to make audio visible, and this has been known. So there it is, Jason. So, going back into history, for whatever that is worth, the first documented case of what could be considered observed cymatics was made by Leonardo da Vinci, who lived from 1452 until 1519. He noticed that vibrating a wooden table on which dust lay created various shapes. And to quote him, I say then that when a table is struck in different places, the dust that is upon it is reduced to various shapes of mounds and tiny hillocks. The dust descends from the hypotenuse of these hillocks, enters beneath their base, and raises itself again around the axis of the point of the hillock. All right, man, I'm just going to call it poppy and cock. You know, this is what you're going to see as we go through this timeline. They're going to trot out Da Vinci. They're going to trot out Galileo Galilee. For some reason, the man with two religious names back to back that are basically the same thing. Um, as far as I can tell, what you're looking at in my view, and this is my view, is the acceptable history that the church apparently provided us uh, whenever you're talking about any of these characters. Um, and they are characters. They become men uh, of men myth and legend. You know, there's, there's not anything here that I'm ever going to accept, but let's go ahead, Jason. Right. So Galileo, who lived from 1564 to 1642, according to mainstream history, he described scraping a brass plate with a chisel and noticed a long row of fine streaks, parallel and equidistant from one another, presumably caused by the brass filings dancing on the surface of the plate and finding safe haven in a series of parallel nodal striations. So let's take some common sense here. These two brilliant men of science, we are told, find this amazing thing, and neither one of them goes very far into the field or hands forward much of anything that matters with regard to a thing called cymatics, which apparently is not even going to get named until the modern era. So I'm just going to call it one more time, poppycock, Jason, in my view. You would think someone like Leonardo da Vinci would explore this topic further, considering all the things that are attributed to him. So I, I thought that was very odd as well. I mean, the mounds of books and papers they have found of his, uh, I, I don't know, it struck me as odd. For me, it's gotten to the point whenever I see a name like Da Vinci or Galileo Galilei, it's like picking up a comic book and seeing Superman or Batman. That's what it's become. 
it's not for me. I want to find the old obscure knowledges uh, that are truly written in text that are before the modern edit, that are not all shiny and glossy and well-known. These are the things I look for because for my part, if I think of what supposedly a man named Da Vinci was about or a man named Galilee, these were men of science who wanted to get to the basis of how it all worked. And yet what's being described here is in fact one of the major foundations of how form is created. It just seems to me that common sense flees the scene with the descriptions we've been handed here. But again, that's just me. And this is another one of those subjects that despite a lot of effort, I had a hard time finding anything specific, I guess I should say. I saw a lot of the same information repeated over and over and over again. And I don't doubt that there's way more information out there. I mean, the internet is massive at this point in the year 2018, and I should be able to find just about anything on anything, and I seem to have trouble despite using different search engines. So I wonder if this is another one of those subjects that the powers that be don't want us to be able to delve into very heavily. Of course it is. Uh, I think that Dollard has it spot on. The person who truly, wholly understands electricity understands any kind of a wave. And then when you understand any kind of a wave, what cymatics begins to demonstrate is this is how form is created. From a pile of sand randomly thrown onto a plate instantly into what some might describe as sacred geometry, but form. Um, And there's a lot more to it when people go to look at the examples. You know, I would give a source, but I don't want to ruin the source, Jason, so I'll let you go on for here. Next, let's talk about a man named Robert Hooke, who lived from 1635 until 1703. He was an English natural philosopher, architect, and polymath. On July 8th, 1680, they say he was able to see the nodal patterns associated with the modes of vibration of glass plates. Robert Hooke ran a bow along the edge of a glass plate covered with flour and saw the nodal patterns emerge. All right, so I think what they're talking about here is a violin bow. There are other examples online of you you can find of people using a violin bow on some kind of a hard metal or glass plate to create the frequency, which is going to create the form out of sand. Now, if I understand the cymatics book that is so heavily engaged in scientific language uh, using $110 words where they only needed a nickel word all the way through it, the idea of nodes is the lines that are being made when you look at the cymatic patterns. That is where the vibration is least. In other words, where the, the open areas in the middle is almost, you could think of it as pools of vibration. But the shapes and the forms you get are astounding. And when you watch the frequency change morph instantly from one shape or pattern into another, the thinking person will have their imagine, imagination captured instantly. And when we get up here a ways, we're going to talk about people who could not speak or hear. I don't like the term deaf and dumb, but people who have lost or were born without these facilities, the reaction their brains have when this was a method used to teach them how to form sound, but the, what happens in their brains when they see these patterns. Go ahead, Jason. Next, let's talk about a gentleman named Ernst Florence Friedrich Chladny who lived from 1756 until 1820. He was a German musician and scientist, sometimes known as the father of acoustics, and almost certainly had access to Robert Hooke's work, but it is Shalodny who history has chosen to acknowledge for his major study of this kind of phenomena. He used a sand-strewn brass plate, excited once again by a violin bow. Since brass is a highly resonant material, he found that a large number of archetypal geometric patterns could be created depending on where on the edge of the plate the violin bow was drawn. 
These patterns are now known as Chladni figures. So this tells you the truth right here. Chladni, who history has chosen to be the acknowledged individual. And if you go online and you are able to find some tables of the patterns, almost certainly it will be the Chladni figures that you see. And they are very simple. And again, I'm calling poppycock from common sense. If you were a man back here in the 1700s who found these patterns, wouldn't you have taken it further and further? Wouldn't you have gone beyond a violin bow? Wouldn't you have realized that you could use liquids and all these other things? Wouldn't there be a heck of a lot more offered. So again, to me, this looks like the total obscuring of a very important thing to know here called cymatics. And, you know, I guess this is, in fact, the guy they picked out, uh, although you will see here in a minute that Mr. Faraday, who so many people will be familiar with, if nothing more than for the Faraday cage, uh, is also one of the chosen names to be associated here in the obscuring of this critically foundational idea called cymatics. So yes, Michael Faraday, who lived from 1791 until 1867, he was an English chemist and physicist, and he studied what he termed crispations between February and July 1831. His diary records many experiments in which he studied the effects of vibration on water, oil, and fine grains. Michael Faraday was fascinated by these phenomena and always sensible of good demonstrations to his audiences at the Royal Institution. There it is, man. The Royal Institutions and all. Now, come on. We got to say it right. It's the Royal Institution. And you say it right. We'll just say poppy and cock. You know, look at crispations. Come on, man. Every one of these people we have just delineated in the acceptable timeline was aware of the hermetic principles. So crispations, my butt. How about vibration? How about polarity? How about rhythm? How about any other number of things which precede these guys by so far and are part of the natural sciences and foundational to the natural sciences? They all had to have been aware of it. And yet what we find here is exactly what I found in the Hans Jenny book, where they would go to lengths to make up some 25 cent word where it wasn't needed to call vibration something else. They actually did use the polarity, but everything else is put into physics terms and these other things when anyone with half a brain understands we're talking about the natural sciences here and they were described way in the hell back in the day. Nobody even knows. So why? And for my part, it's because they're obscuring a critically important thing in cymatics here, what it means, what it is and what it does and the fact that it describes the entire wave spectrum in visible form. Next, let's talk about Lord Raleigh, John William Strutt, the third Baron Raleigh. He lived from 1842 until 1919, and he was an English physicist and second Cavendish professor of physics at Cambridge University, following James Clerk Maxwell. Raleigh earned the Nobel Prize for Physics in 1904, along with William Ramsey, for the discovery of the element argon. He also discovered surface waves in seismology, now known as Raleigh waves. His major treatise, Theory of Sound, in two volumes, includes a chapter on the vibrations of plates and is still considered an important work. In it, he explored modal phenomena in depth, now part of the emergent science of semantics. So it was a seminal important work. Well, then why can't we go on the internet and find out all kinds of information about this important work covering cymatics? And I'll say for the record also, Nobel Prize, nonsense. There's nothing Nobel about it. Um, these are the guys that are held up. 
But, you know, common sense tells us if his major treatise on the theory of sound is such a seminal foundational book, I will ask openly again, if it's so damn important, why can't we go on the Internet and look up endless information about it? Uh, in fact, what we find is very low-level information and very limited reading uh, on the topic that matters. Next, we have a lady named Margaret Watts Hughes. She lived from 1842 until 1907. She was a Welsh woman who experimented with a device she invented in 1885 that she named the Aedophone. Her invention consisted of a wooden resonating chamber with an open end across which was stretched a rubber membrane strewn with sand and other media. By singing into a tube that interfaced with the resonating chamber, she was able to create voice figures. It seems likely that she had been inspired by the work of Michael Faraday since she uses the term crispations when discussing the patterns that she observed. Like Faraday, she was much taken with the beauty of the forms, and in an article now accessible in the Cornell University Library, she wrote, I have gone on singing into shape these peculiar forms, and stepping out of doors, have seen their parallels in the flowers, ferns, and trees around me. And again, as I have watched the little heaps in the formation of the floral figures gather, the, the, gather themselves up and then shoot out their petals, just as a flower springs from the swollen bud, the hope has come to me that these humble experiments may afford some suggestions in regard to nature's production of her own beautiful forms. She was able to take impressions of the voice figures by applying a coated glass plate onto moist forms, although it is not known what form the coating took. Well, it sounds to me right off the bat that what she found was sacred geometry. Well, she, yeah, exactly. It was sacred geometry. But this sentence really tells the tale. I have gone on singing these shapes into peculiar forms. So basically something out of nothing with the human voice. How many religious texts from how many traditions will talk about the sacred sound that created all form? Um, and then she says, and stepping out of doors, I have seen these very sh same shapes. I just sang into existence with the waveforms of my voice. I have seen their parallels in flowers, ferns, and trees. You know, this is the Fibonacci idea and so many other things. But again, Jason, there are actually a number of devices. This one, the Idaphone, I guess it's called, um, that do the very same thing. But think about what we're, we're saying here. If we accepted that this is the first person who ever did this, which I don't accept, this is the first time the human voice was, a, the, the pattern that the human voice makes when it is speaking was actually seen in physical form. In other words, if we were to get one of these devices and say, A, E, I, O, you, each one of those vowels would be instantly recognizable as an actual geometric shape in this world. In other words, each of those spoken tones creating form. Now, there's all kinds of things that people probably can find to look up that people who did not have the sense of hearing or speech were actually taught to speak, though they couldn't hear themselves, by using devices like this so they could see a physical representation of a person who could hear and speak and then learn to match it um, through these physical forms. But later on, up into the 1900s, uh, they would watch the brain activity in these people who could not hear um, when they were exposed to these shapes and the brain activity went wild, showing kind of how archetypal uh, these ideas and these forms are. And again, 
if anyone goes back and listens to this bullet point again, you're being told a lot of truth here. It's just not obvious until you think about it. They're basically saying the human voice created forms that I can go out and see in nature. It's how a tree grows, it's how a flower is made. If you reference our older episodes on color and alchemy, you will see the alchemist going into the garden, recognizing instantly from a flower that has five petals that is purple, all these characteristics he could know from vibrational rate to gender to polarity, all these things. This is what is creating it. This is what is creating it. Anyhow, Jason. And once again, I'd like to point out that someone like Leonardo da Vinci, I would think, with his background, would understand that what he was seeing was tied in with sacred geometry, the golden ratio, the Fibonacci spiral, all that, because he understood those concepts very, very well. Or supposedly, he did, anyway. So it's a very curious thing. Well, we all know that that's not true because Mr. Da Vinci, the ultimate naturalist, ultimate scientist, what he wanted to do was make the first army tank, the first machine gun, the first machine arrow launcher, all these other things attributed to him that have to do directly with war. Um, This is the acceptable history. And I will point out once more for the record, history is his story. And that's what it is, man. It's a story. Go ahead, Jace. Might be interesting to take a stab at uh, Mr. Da Vinci one of these days as well. Yeah, we could, but I mean, people would probably get very bored of hearing me say nonsense. (laughs) Next, we have a nice lady named Mary Desiree Waller. She lived from 1886 until 1959. She was the daughter of a famous English physiologist, August D. Waller. Mary Waller became professor of physics at the Royal Free Hospital Medical School in London. She became fascinated by Chalodny's work and recreated all the forms he discovered, taking his work to a higher level. Her book, Chalodny Figures, A Study in Symmetry, was published posthumously in 1961 and includes details of her novel method of exciting plates employing solid carbon dioxide chips. She approached the subject of Chalodny figures with scientific rigor, and her work represents a rich resource for students of this branch of acoustics, including some of the mathematical equations that describe the phenomena. Well, here's the first problem, scientific rigor, right? We're going to force it into the most materialistic thing of the modern age called science. Well, I'm sorry here. A study in symmetry, really? No. How about a study in the creation of form where form did not previously exist? That's the foundation of all things that have form. And for my part, these little bullet points that are in the acceptable timeline are all there to convince us that science is the be-all and end-all. And yet the very study of cymatics proves flat out that it's not. In science, the materialistic science, if it can't be seen, weighed, measured, tasted, proven to be material in some way, it's not recognized. And yet the very idea of cymatics is things like, guess what? I can speak and my voice can create form. This harkens back to the idea that all of our minds are creating this place. That's where it goes. Science will never recognize these things, I would point out. Next, we have the aforementioned Hans Jenny. He lived from 1904 until 1972. He was a Swiss medical doctor and scientist who studied visual sound intensively. Jenny published his first volume, Chimatic, in 1967 and his second in 1972, the year he passed away. Jenny coined the word chimatic, which is somatic in English, from the Greek kuma, meaning billow or wave, to describe the periodic effects that sound and vibration has on matter. 
His two volumes are rich sources of cymatic imagery, which he observed and described in great detail, although leaving scientific and mathematical explanations to other scientists who would come after him. Jenny invented what was called the tonoscope, a device similar to Margaret Watts Hughes' aidophone, but including an electromechanical transducer to excite the membrane. He was also the first to suggest that such a device may one day assist deaf individuals to acquire speech. Jenny also excited steel plates using piezo-crystal elements driven by an electronic oscillator, devices that were not available to Margaret Watts Hughes and other acoustic pioneers of the past. The piezo-crystal transducers were able to excite the plates in a wide range of frequencies, including high audible frequencies, resulting in the formation of complex sand pattern forms. And piezo-crystals, for anybody who doesn't know, are things that are actually used in guitar pickups, uh, normally for acoustic guitars, for their bright, clean, crisp sound. Boy, I wonder if the understanding of cymatics had anything to do with the development of the electric guitar pickup, Jason. <laughs> Here in this bullet point, 1904 to 1972, is Hans Jenny, the man that the, the modern idea of cymatics is going to be pinned to. As I mentioned now, if you go to places like Amazon to find materials his book or the redo of his book is going to be one of the main things that is offered you. And as I pointed out before, it uses all this language that is unnecessary and very confusing for a person who doesn't have a PhD. And I'm not even kidding. It's it's beyond the pale. Um, and here, for the umpteenth time, we're talking about an, a very ancient thing. This has been known all the way back. And in my view, people like Hans Jenny are just obscuring what is known. And as we get further into the timeline, you're going to find out that cymatic patterns have been hidden all over the place, even in that, what's the name of that chapel, Jason? I think we cover it, Roslyn. Roslyn Chapel, yes. Yeah, um, I've had problems with that place. The, the quality of the stone carving is very low compared to other things we can compare it to. But nonetheless, we see cymatic shapes put into these things. Why is it a hidden thing? Because it's an important thing. Following Hans Jenny, which is again 1904-72 is his stated lifespan, um, we should talk about a few things. The piezo crystal, you pointed out, you know, here it is already into electric guitars. I forget when Les Paul put together the first electric guitars, but these things clearly had to be known. But what are we talking about here? We're talking about whoever the first, truly the first individual who discovered the idea of cymatics for the first time sound had become visible. Now, even if you set all that aside, because a truly scientific mind, if you want to use a normal term, or naturally scienced mind would have instantly recognized, wait a minute, I see the shapes of flowers and all these things, it would have been a big deal. But even if we pull away from that and we let's look at something like aircraft manufacturing, where you have to know the structural integrity, cymatics proves flat out the structural integrity of anything. So it has to have been used on some level just to show where there are flaws in any hard material. Uh, you and I have both looked up how cymatics has been done on guitar bodies and violins and other things. But let's talk a minute about tuning, how we tune musical instruments. We've covered this before, but it's a good place to bring it back up. I think the cited date for the orchestral A tuning, and I could be a little off here, but I'm close, was 1936 was the first run they made at it. They apparently made a couple runs at it. It might have been into the early 40s when it was actually implemented, but if I remember correctly, it was the late 30s. Um, Every time we start to talk about the fact that all what I will call orchestral tuning, which probably isn't that accurate, it basically means whenever you go into a music hall to tune all your instruments, that A is going to be vibrating at 440 cycles a second, or what I think is called hertz. 
which is also a telling word on the on the face of it. But what they were tuning away from, one of the major tunings was the Verde tuning or the green tuning called 432. Endlessly, people have come in to defend the idea of 440, and yet Cymatics, Jason, proves outright what is going on in that tuning shift. We're only talking about eight cycles a second here, the difference between 432 and 440. Yet when, and I will show again in, in the thumbnail for this episode, what it looks like in Cymatic patterns and sacred geometry when 432 is audibly transformed into a visual meeting and what 440 is. What you will find is that all the shapes that appear to resemble flowers and snowflakes and have a high degree of complexity are probably much more helpful to the natural human form. And what we find in the 440 cymatics is a blob. Um, I mean, Jason, remember when we did the episode on this, how many people came in to tell us we didn't know what we were talking about, even after you gave examples? Right. I don't think this is arguable. And people can go on and on and on saying we don't know what we're talking about, but the different frequencies, you can you can see them visually spelled out. I mean, it, it just is what it is. And I'm not that great of a musician, and I can easily pick out 440 versus 432 in a blind test. Now, maybe that's because 432 is just a little flatter, 440 is a little sharper. I don't know if it's that, but it just seems to sound more pleasant to me. I even made a mistake one time in a recording because I was recorded 432, and I realized something didn't sound or feel right, and I realized I'd accidentally recalibrated something to 440 because just about all the programs out there default to that, and I had to go back and fix it. So it's noticeable. It has an effect, and I think it has to do with the natural cycles of the planet and just the way everything interacts. If I was going to describe it to a person listening, I would describe it like this. When you hear 432, it's it do, it's not as excitable. It's more soothing uh, on the human natural form, uh, maybe more closely identifiable with an idea, something like the Fibonacci sequence, which seeks to use a spiral to show how, say, a leaf or a flower is formed, or for that matter, the human hand. Um, but the main thing here is back in the day when they changed A to 440, it really took control of things because whenever, as an example, if you walked into a music hall to play music with a bunch of people, you knew damn well that piano was tuned to 440. And so that becomes a problem. If you want to tune to anything else, a piano tuner has to come in, and this is not a quick thing for most people. But I will point out even further, here in the modern age, when you get those little guitar tuners that are so handy, Jason and I both use them, you clip them onto your neck and the vibration helps you tune your guitar you can set it to any frequency to tune your guitar. And since so many keyboard-type devices are electronic now, you can go to any frequency you like. But as I have said before, if a band like, say, ACDC had been forced to deliver its music in 432, the impact would have been much, much less because it would not have been so excitable. In the Hans Jenny book that I just read cover to cover, they show examples of taking Brahms and Mozart music and doing cymatics. And the patterns are so infinitely complex. To put this into where we've come, if you were to take rap and do cymatics with it, likely what you're going to see is very abrupt, non-complex pattern changes with these abrupt beat changes um, and things like this. And I invite people to try to go out and look at classical music imaged in cymatics. The, the patterns are so complex, it almost evades description uh, by a human being. But is there anything you'd add about the music before we move on? Because I think this is a critical thing. Um, almost all the music in our lifetime has been delivered to us in 440. And anyone who 
who examines the image that I'm going to put forward for this episode will see the difference of how those vibrations are creating form. When I recorded one of my favorite songs, I noticed a lot of people were telling me that it had a hypnotic effect almost to it. And that was on purpose. I wanted to see if the 4-3-2 with the way the chord structure went and just the way I designed the song in general would have an overall effect. And it did indeed seem to. So there, there was a real world example for my sake anyway, that taught me that, hey, that, that there is something to this. There seems to be some real world application that I can, I can actually gauge off of other people's reactions. Well, when we did the episode on this and we showed who the people were that were instrumental in pushing the 440 tuning change, uh, these are places that are never have been never helpful to society, aren't they? Um, it's the same old names. Who were they, Jason? It was like Rockefeller. I think Rothschild was in there. They even dragged some Nazis on the scene for the final implementation, supposedly, of these things. And these are known family names and organizations that have not been helpful to society at large. They've been more concerned with controlling society and doing all these negative things. I mean, that tells us something too, doesn't it? Right. If those people are involved, your hackles should automatically be up because the only person they serve is themselves. For my part, when I listen to 432 on my guitar, which I tune it to, it feels more soothing, less shocking, excitable or abrupt. It feels more to me like when I'm playing an acoustic guitar that the the vibration or the rhythm of my body is more closely matching what's coming out of my instrument. And to me, that's not an arguable point. But hopefully people will look at the image to this episode and see flat out that uh, if you accept the idea that things that take on like a, a snowflake shape or a flower shape or a very complex shape, these are what I guess I could describe as higher-minded vibrational rates. And when you look at the opposite of that, the opposite thing is going on. Anyhow, back to you. So what I'd really like to do at some point is pull out, oh, who knows, maybe my Telecaster, throw a nice overdrive on it and actually hook it up to one of these cymatics devices and see what happens when I strum chords tuned to 440 and then strum chords tuned to 432. I'm very much guessing that we would see a substantial difference. There is no doubt. And not only that, in the readings that I just did, you can put two tones at once and you can offset so that the waveforms would either be in sync or against each other. But it's almost like the idea of putting together a chord, right? Three notes makes a chord. All these things were done in cymatics. But again, uh, in the... I think it was the 1700th. I'm trying to remember the quadruvium from so long ago. I haven't read it in so long. There's another device that shows how to do this mechanically. It's called a harmonograph. And what it basically is, is one, two, or three pendulums. And if everyone knows what a metronome is, you know, it's the thing that goes click, 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 click to help you keep tying if you're playing piano or something. And you shorten the rate, which is the exact same thing as putting a finger on a guitar string and shortening it so the pitch gets higher, uh, the pendulum will go quicker. The harmonograph puts pens or pencils over paper with three pendulums, and it's probably the forerunner of what we call a spirograph today. But these things were known, and not only were they known, they were way in vogue before the modern era. And uh, as we move on, you'll see, and anyone who goes out to do a search return will see how hidden this critically important idea is. So to finish up some more information on Jenny, in his somatics, we find images of his work demonstrating the increase in geometrical complexity in matter that occurs with an increase in vibration. 
So what starts out as a relatively simple and spare pattern in your lower frequencies will grow in detail and complexity as the pitch increases, while still retaining the same basic theme. This makes some sense in that the higher a frequency rises, the more informational complexity it can code for, and the more complex the data, the form, or the geometry will become. Frequency determines form. As vibrational frequencies shift, they move through harmonic gradations within what's called the ether. These gradations work as noted, as do the harmonics of music. They are octave-based. So... For all the people out there that are musical, most of what we just said, uh, you'll understand it instantly. For those people who don't play a musical instrument and these kinds of things, a piano uh, has 88 keys. I think it's it's defined as seven octaves on most pianos. I suppose there's a few out there that might have eight octaves. What an octave is, is like if I take a low, boom, 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 and that was A, and I go up to the next A where the vibration is getting higher, um, that is an octave. And so basically in cymatics, it can be shown that the complexity doubles in a systematic way. In other words, if the low vibration was uh, a four-pointed object, it would probably turn out to be eight-pointed or 12-pointed. This kind of idea where twos, fours um, in, the initial, in the initial thing are replicated out. But, you know, you'll even notice in my last uh, – image for the last episode, I included the idea of musical thirds, where a major third, the ratio that we're talking about is four to five. Well, that would result in a nine in basic numerology, yet a minor third is five to six, which is 11. And minors always make things sad. And what I was doing there was comparing what cymatics shows us with the idea of 9-11. And I did it through minor thirds. And since there are two thirds, that would be represented as 33 in a way. So there's all that for whatever it's worth, Jason. And I know most people who don't play a musical instrument might struggle with a bit of this. Right. Okay, so we actually just took a break and cut the audio right now. Uh, my mind's been all over the place for this first hour episode, but I'm happy to announce that we just got word from Robert Sproul, the living man in Scotland, from Rob S. YouTube channel that we mentioned in the opening here. Uh, he's going to be our next guest. And to me, this is one of the biggest deals in a long, long time. Uh, this man has set up a common law court. And so considering that we've just done... Uh, four episodes on law. Uh, there are a lot of people out there who emailed in. And by the way, I apologize that we're drifting from cymatics. But to me, this is critically important to get out to people. So so many people had emailed me that said, OK, we've watched the four part series on law you did. But how does that apply to people in Europe? How does that apply to people in England? Well, this next episode, uh, we just got done talking with Robert and I met him for the first time. And he's going to tell you all kinds of things uh, about common law and how it relates to any part of the world that fall under, I don't even know how to say it, the aegises of the common law idea. I mean, for me, Jason, that was a pretty exciting Skype call there. That was a very in-depth call for how short it was. Rob made the point that this doesn't just affect Scotland, where he's at. It's everywhere. Right. And so what's going on here, you know, I first heard about Rob when he had about 200 subscribers and this was i don't know maybe not right as censorship came to bear but not long uh, after i first heard about it censorship came to bear and i was always worried that if i link my channel which was being so heavily censored with his that he would get some of the blowback but uh he picked up a number of subs since i first recognized what he was doing and what we're going to try to do here is cover the actual creation 
by human beings of a common law court. And it's an exciting, exciting time. And we imagine there's going to be blowback. And we talked about this in the call. For my part, I don't care. It's that important. And for Rob's part, he's the living man. And he says he's not letting up on this. Anything else to add about this, Jason? People have been asking for examples of the kind of fighting against the law material. And here we are. We've got it. Rob has been doing this. He's been doing it for quite some time now. I I don't know exactly how long, but it's been a few years. And he is implementing all of this this sort of knowledge that, that people have been debating on. And we've had a lot of people really saying some harsh things against other guests. And I don't know 100% what's right and what's wrong, but Rob is going at this, that it is that it is indeed maritime courts and all that that we're going against, that the person is not the man. These are two different things. The person is the, the corporate entity. And he even said right in the call, that's the legal fiction in all capital letters, the, the man, the flesh and blood. And he even went to his doctor to get a letter to say that he is a man of flesh and blood. He is not the person. He is not the accused. So he is implementing this information in a big way, and he is winning. And, you know, we asked some other, and yeah, just to put a fine point on it, this is real world, man. This is being implemented in a real world. So it's not about people arguing about the veracity of it. It is what it is on the face of it. But we asked him other questions, which I'll allow to run forward into the next episode, which will be 115, where we cover these things. But uh, for those who have followed us a long time, you remember when we first started to talk about maritime law and how the Pirates of the Sea, what's the name of the company, Jason, the shipping company there? The East India Shipping Company. And there you go. The East India, I mean, it tracks all the way back and we just confirmed it through him and these ideas, you can put them on the doorstep where they belong. And that's what we're going to do next time. But anyhow, Jason, I don't want to leave. I mean, it's exciting and I wanted to get this announcement in, but let's close out a little bit with Cymatic so we can queue up for the second hour. We're going to open the second hour with the Roslyn Chapel in uh, Edinburgh or near Edinburgh. So many people have heard about it. And I looked at this a number of times over my life and recently went back and looked at it again. And here's the one thing that strikes me. Besides, there is clearly cymatic geometry put into certain parts which have been recognized as such. But what really strikes me is the quality of the masonry, the carving. Uh, Here in Rhode Island, where I am, stone masons were a big, big deal because they had two or three granite quarries, which made some of the best granite known to exist at the time. If you go look at some of the carving these done, it's not quite Michelangelo, but it's damn impressive. And so when we look at the carving that's gone on in the past, and there have been many different clips, even the no trees on flat earth or whatever that clip is, begins to address the idea of how come we saw all this insane marble carving and then up in the modern age there's nothing to compare i will point out that in the state of rhode island there was some damn high-end granite carving statues mostly for gettysburg war memorials and for cemeteries but nonetheless those guys are all going away now and when you go look at Roslyn chapel I don't mean to be rude, but the carving there is not up to snuff, man. It it doesn't compare on any level in my view, Jason. It is interesting, though. It does seem like the uh, intention was to encode a message. And I actually went on YouTube and listened to the music that is supposed to be translated out of the artwork in that chapel. It's all very interesting. And, you know, I don't know enough about it to, to, to make flat out claims here. But I will say we have examples of stone carving that would blow your mind. I'm talking statues of angels where their eyelashes 
Their eyelashes are even carved in. I mean, it's mind-boggling to think that a human being could pull this off at one time. And then when we compare it to things like Rosalind Chapel, I don't know, maybe you could make the argument that these were not uh, journeymen in their craft or something like that. But anyhow, that's where we're going to open up the second hour. Anything you want to add before I bring hour one of 114 to a close, Jason? Hopefully everyone will join us for hour two, of course, but we gave you a good overview of what cymatics is in hour one. And if nothing else, check out the Hans Jenny work because he really did do some really good work in regards to figuring all this out. And let's take this further. So let's get uh, modern day people going at this even harder. I feel bad for having so many kind of irons in the fire as we went into this hour one. I wanted it to be more. Jason and I may actually come back at some point and do a film around cymatics after we're done with Shoot the Moon or something like this. It's that important a topic, and it's been that marginalized. And truly, Hans Jenny has become the poster boy, but I will maintain. This goes all the way back to a supposed time of hermetic principles. It's all defined there. It's all shown. The alchemists looking at the colors and shapes of plants. It was all there, and it's about the creation. How does this place come to be? What makes form? Well, here it is. Here it is, uh, and it's all very interesting. Anyhow, that does bring our one of episode 114 to a close. Uh, at the posting of this episode, there will be 114 free hours of content at crow777radio.com. You do not need a login. Anyhow, there it is. I hope to see you all over there for the second hour where we jump right into Rosalind Chapel. There it is, man. Cheers.